Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, and our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We make it look easy. We make it look good. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. I'm pretty sure we already have. So, welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and As parents and caregivers, we need to talk about the facts of cold and flu season. So we're we're in the thick of it, and a lot of families are going through it right now. Yeah, down for the count. Yep. Right here. <laughs> well, not currently, so yes. don't worry. Oh my gosh, not good, not good. <laughs> well, according to the CDC, this uh, flu season, uh, which is basically from October until now, mm-hmm. we've seen roughly 22 to 33 million flu illnesses. Yeah, so that includes 10 to 15 million flu visits to the doctor. And between 210,000 and 370,000 hospitalizations and 12 to 30,000 flu-related deaths. Yikes. Yeah. It's a lot. Well, the season, uh, cold and flu season in the Weiner house has been particularly brutal. Yeah. Um, my husband was sick over Christmas. and for Oh, all- I heard about this from your sister. <laughs> yes. Just so you know, full disclosure, I would rather be sick myself and take one for the team with my and care for my sick kids rather than have one sick husband. <laughs> They're such babies. <laughs> the, the, the man cold. No, he really did have the flu, but yeah. it was it was pretty brutal. And then my daughter was sick for five straight days. She had 104 fever. Wow. Like she was drinking water. So, you know, she was like staying hydrated. So I wasn't totally worried. But man, it lasted for forever. And then she got better. And then a couple weeks later after break was over, She's in, I've told you about the etiquette and dance class that she's in. Mm-hmm. It's like an extracurricular thing. I'll be darned. After the first class, those sweaty boy hands, the germs, <laughs> literally that, that following Monday, boom, fever's back again. And she's out for three days in, in junior high. All right. Sophie took ballroom dancing last year and they were required to wear white gloves. I wish we yeah. should have done that. I was so glad. I was like, listen, I, you know, I don't know where to find these white gloves, but it's better than touching boys. Well, after, after I told my story, cause I had to make sure everyone, I'm on, of course, I'm on the committee for this yeah. event. Of course you are. And so I, I told all the moms about it and the next, the following week, we went out to um, Walmart and bought the hand sanitizer pumps. And so when the kids came in the door at school, they got the hand sanitizer on the hands before yep. they did the dance. And then when they left. Okay, perfect. So at least, like, I don't know, we'll ask the doctor if it's a placebo, but we felt better. Yes. Like, we were doing a solid by doing that. Yeah. So do you guys have a policy at your school for, you know, if a kid is sick? Um, there is 24-hour fever-free. And I, I got to be honest, I feel like I'm the only one that follows that. Well, no, I followed it. So a couple of weeks ago, Soph had a fever um, and I kept her home. It was a little bit selfish of me because I I didn't want her to get sicker. You know, like, you know, I feel like she just needed to sleep. So uh-huh. um, she had a fever and it, it, she was fever free in the morning. But I was like, uh, 
no, you're staying home. And she was mad because she wanted to go to school. But I was like, eh. No, she, if she's fever free in the morning, she has to wait till the next morning. Right, exactly. So we, we I kept her home. Okay. And it was okay. on the weekend. So then she had, you know, a, the long weekend to. Yeah. And, at, and that, that last day when you keep them home for, for fever free is pretty rough because they're like ready to climb the walls. Yeah. You absolutely. know, but, and they're like, I'm ready, mom. And I'm like, sorry, buddy. Like, yep. I remember this one time I was on the playground walking the kids to school and this was years ago. And the, this girl, you know, kids are so filter free and they don't pay attention to what they're saying. And she's like, yeah, I, Mrs. Weiner, I, I threw up this morning. And I was like, she's like, it was, I threw up all over the kitchen floor. And I'm like, what? Gross. And I'm like, what the hell? What, what are you doing here? Like, did, I was, I did was, did you ask? Well, no, 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 you, no. you beat your tongue. I, you mean I, I go to the mom? No, I'm not going to do that. Not yeah. my circus, not my monkeys. I'm, but yeah. whatever. But I was really annoyed because then I'm, maybe I even went over to my daughter and said, don't go near <laughs> so and so Susie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't touch her. Don't go by her because she puked. Like, what the heck? <laughs> All right. Well, so to talk about cold and flu season and how to keep your family healthy, uh, we called someone who knows a thing or two about germs. Dr. Anita Chandra is a spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics, and she's going to join us today. She also happens to be Tracy's kid's former pediatrician. This was so weird that when I called the American Academy of Pediatrics, I said, can I get an expert? And they wrote me back and sent me an email back, and they said that they found somebody to speak. And I was like, no way! <laughs> it's been, so Kate's 13, so it would have been 11 years ago because we, we made the trip to the burbs. So I did, I did keep her for a while, like for the well visits, but then after they started getting sick and she was going to kindergarten, I'm like, this is impossible to drive from Downers Grove all the way to the city. Right, <laughs> like, right. I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. So we had to go find somebody else. But you, your first love is Dr. Chandra. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> we, we loved her so much, but we, we had to, pick somebody else. Welcome. Should we bring her in? Sure. Welcome, Dr. Chandra. Hello. <laughs> I like hearing this story. <laughs> the Eisenhower in the morning, like when you have a sick kid after a while, it was it was too much. So we, we had we had to cheat on you. Sorry. <laughs> understand. Understand. As long as my kiddos are growing up well, wherever they're growing up, that makes me happy. Exactly. So I can report that everything is good. So we figured we'd bring you in today to, to kind of talk about this because we're right in the throes of cold and flu season um, because... Uh, everyone has questions, and I feel like on social media you see questions, so we'll talk about that later. But could we just talk specifically about how to know the difference or what the difference is between cold and flu? Because I feel like moms throw things out all the time. Oh, she has a flu, or oh, it's a cold. Like, how do you know the difference between the two? Sure. So um, you're right. We're right in the middle of cold, cough, flu season. A lot of people confuse these things, and I would say um, most children are going to have your run-of-the-mill cold. So it's going to be runny nose, a cough, maybe low-grade fevers, maybe a little bit of a poor appetite. And it's most commonly caused by rhinovirus. Um, And there's nothing you do except for really good supportive care, good hand washing, lots of fluids, rest, listen to your body, sleep well, and let your body recover. But the flu is a little bit different. So what we're seeing with the flu, and there are different strains of the flu, but the symptoms are pretty similar, is profoundly higher fevers. So like 103 to 105, comes out of nowhere, 
um, really achy muscles, feeling really, really run down. There's just this look of like, I'm just so exhausted feeling, certainly coughing, runny nose, um, sometimes labored breathing, and sometimes also more like gastrointestinal symptoms, so vomiting and diarrhea, but just really feeling like a truck ran over you. That's the classic definition or the classic symptoms that we see for the flu. So we see a lot of kids coming in where parents are saying, I think my child has the flu um, and it may just be a cold or it may be the flu. And so we, we have to help people figure out the difference between the two. So you say the flu is a, a quick onset of a, of a higher fever. So is it always can, is a flu always accompanied by a fever or can you have the flu without a fever? I think it's pretty rare to have the flu without the fever. Now, some people confuse like the stomach flu, they'll call it, and think that that's the flu. But what I'm talking about with the flu is true influenza. That's its own virus. Stomach flus or stomach bugs are really just gastrointestinal viruses. They're not influenza, and they're two different things. Um, But influenza, the, the serious one that you're talking about, really is high fevers, body aches, significant cough, runny nose, labored breathing, and just really, really fatigued children. But stomach flu is just, you know, you, you could have a kid who throws up a couple times, but does not have the flu. Does not have influenza, right? They can throw up, they can have some diarrhea, they can even have a fever, but they're caused by other viruses. And gastrointestinal flus or stomach bugs can be, um, you know, anywhere from 24 hours worth of symptoms to three weeks worth of symptoms, but it's not the same thing as influenza. Well, so this season, what have you seen as far as how long the flu symptoms are lasting for the actual influenza? Um, Usually somewhere between five and seven days, to be honest with you. Usually it's... um, uh, fevers first, and then the rest of the symptoms, the fatigue, the lethargy, the body aches. I've seen some really um, significant cases of children who have such bad myalgias or body aches that they can't walk. Um, Those symptoms are typically lasting five to seven days. Can you get the flu twice? Because like I said in the beginning, my daughter was you know, had the high fever 104 over Christmas break and then got it again. Like it was 102. So it wasn't quite as high, but is it possible you could have it twice? So um, there are different strains of influenza, and what we're seeing, sadly, this year is that some kids will get influenza B, and then a couple weeks later will get influenza A. They're just different strains of the flu, and um, it is, it's pretty alarming that we're just seeing the same kid get the, you know, two different strains of the flu, but it does happen, and it's really a bummer, like you said, that your, jo- your daughter had to miss, you know, was out over break and then was out from school, too. Yes, it was a total bummer. So when we're talking about colds and, you know, uh, rhinovirus or whatever, right? It's called rhinovirus? Okay. Rhinovirus, yeah. Like yep. rhino, like nose. <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, yep. can can you prevent it by taking vitamin C or, you know, I, I used to take, and I, I don't anymore, but um, my husband used to make fun of me because I would take Zycam and Echinacea whenever I thought I was getting a cold. Can you actually... Emergency. Yeah, emergency. I, yes. I did. One, Kate, once she was sick, I took emergency. Yeah. Is that a placebo? <laughs> So I don't know that there is a specific amount of, or you know, relatively good research that tells us that, that that tells us that these vitamins are going to be helpful in preventing um, symptoms of colds or symptoms of the flu. I think that if you are in your best health, you're you have your best fighting power. So if you're a person who doesn't eat a good variety of fruits and vegetables, then certainly taking a vitamin is is a good thing, and your body will absorb what it needs to absorb. But you can't 
there's no like superpower to taking extra vitamin C. Um, and we're, we're very cautious about overdoing any of these things with children because a lot of the research hasn't even been done in children. So if it makes you feel healthier and you um, are able to get better rest and you feel like you're in your best fighting power, then taking a general multivitamin is fine. But I wouldn't, I don't see any benefit in like loading up with a ton of vitamin C or loading up with a ton of zinc or echinacea or anything like that. Just eat healthy. Get your vitamins through your food. Well, and the the way to think about this, and I'm going to get on my, you know, vaccine bandwagon, but I'm going to say the way to prevent influenza as best you can is to stay in your best health, wash your hands frequently, don't be around a ton of people who have the have have influenza or the flu, and get your influenza vaccine. All right, that this brings up a uh, <clears throat> embarrassing point for me because um, one of my kids got the flu shot and the other one didn't. Just Why is we, it embarrassing? I, we didn't even do it. Okay, so I was going to ask: Is it too late to get the flu shot, or it, it is not? It okay. is not too late. Flu season, I think you mentioned, um, starts in October, but it goes all the way until April, and so we are offering influenza vaccines still, and um, it's. You know, every year we worry about the match. And this year, it seems that the influenza vaccine is not the best match for actually preventing you from getting influenza. However, what it does is it really helps prevent you from getting the complications of influenza. So bad pneumonias, bad myositis, need to be in the hospital. Some of those more significant complications are significantly cut down with getting the flu shot. Also, we find that people who have gotten the flu shot tend to be sicker for less time. Oh, it shortens the duration of it? It shortens the duration of illness, and that in and of itself is really helpful. So, yes, you may still get the flu because it isn't the, it isn't the best match, but it still is the best fighting power we can give you. Okay. So how, how long are you contagious with the flu? Are, am I like, that's one thing I'm a, I'm a germ freak in my house. Yes, she Um, is. And so is my husband. Sadly, he Mm -hmm. actually takes it to the next level. But like, um, is it too, like once the kids come home and, and they're like sick with it, we've already been exposed to it, right? So if we're going to get it, we're going to get it. Right. You can't just tell them to go to their room for five days. Or you not. Can't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, so technically, you're actually contagious before you even show the actual fever symptoms because there's this thing called viremia where you actually have the virus circulating in your system and developing its own power. And so, in that time period, if you're start, starting to sneeze a lot or cough out a lot and you have a lot of um, wet secretions coming from your face, those can be contagious. So technically you're contagious for a day or so before you even truly experience the fever from the flu. And you are contagious for as long as you've got a lot of um, discharge from your nose. So if you're sneezing and you've got, you know, wet snot sort of on the countertop or whatever, you're still contagious. Now your contagion goes down over time, but you're still contagious. So when we talk about what to do at home, you know, over winter months, I tell all my patients, wash your hands over and over again. So, you know, having the Purell pump before and after um, etiquette or dance class, I think that's great. <laughs> wash your hands over and over again. I think it's, you know, with little children, I tell parents, have them change their clothes when they come back from daycare or preschool. There's no reason to sit in those clothes that have wet secretions on them from some other child. So wash your hands well. A lot of people don't do, you know, a lot of people don't shampoo their hair frequently, but do it more often in the winter time. Just get all the germs off of you. Once it's already in your house, yes, you're kind of trapped with it. You can still do good hand washing and things like cover your cough or, you know, cough in your elbow and use Kleenex and throw away the Kleenex and wash your hands again and 
you know, in my house, when my kids are sick, I have them all have different corners of sofas and different blankets that they sit on and those get washed over and over again. And yes, you know, wiping down, using Lysol to clean surfaces. That's all very, very helpful. That was our next question. (laughs) I was going to ask that. I go to and Costco. This is not a plug for Lysol. This is not a plug for Lysol. <laughs> no, you get whatever, just an antibacterial wipe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And actually, it's it's not even, so it's funny because people always use antibacterial soap. But it's actually the action of rubbing your hands together with the soap that makes it that makes it beneficial. It's not that you have to use an antibacterial. Remember, even influenza is not a bacteria. It's a virus. So it's not the antibacterial soap. It's the action of rubbing your hands together with warm water and soap that actually cleans your hands. Can I go back to one thing you said? You sure. said about clo- about clothes. You can you it can it can be on somebody's clothes. Like, well, let's say you've got a child. Um, let's say you've got you know like six monthers, and there's somebody's got wet clothes because they're drooling and then somebody else has sneezed on them and in that wet secretion area on their clothing, I mean, you can have a virus lay there for a little bit of time and still make you contag- you know, make you sick from it. I'll okay. be darn. Okay. That's good to know. Now, is it a wives' tale that you can get sick if you don't wear a coat during winter or, you know, um, or if, they, if you don't get eight hours of sleep? That's high school kids don't wear jackets. Do you ever notice yeah. that? I mean, we don't. Some of them are wearing shorts. Believe me, I know that. I know that. <laughs> Especially if you have sons, I know that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, you don't get sick from being outside in the cold without a jacket. You don't get sick from going outside with wet hair. You don't get sick from um, not sleeping for eight hours. You don't actually get sick from those things, but you may not be at your prime fighting power. Does that make sense? So if you're feeling run down for another reason, you okay. are more susceptible to getting something else. Right. If you are, um, the reason coughs and colds and flu are more rampant in the winter months are not because it's cold outside, but really it's because people are huddled together in small spaces sneezing on each other. Ah. So spreading things from person to person. So it's not that it's just the cold weather. It's that now you're all huddled together somewhere and everybody, you know, one person sneezing and that's, in a tight, a smaller space, and so everybody's going to be exposed to that sneeze. That makes a lot of sense. Now, you mentioned a little bit about being contagious uh, after the fever is gone. You know, the the policy of twenty four hours fever free is clearly not being enforced anyway. But um, is twenty four hours long enough? What I tell families is um, there's there's the reality of life, right? You still have to attend school and you have to go to work. And so it is really hard to say stay home until you're completely 100% better. But what you can do is think about how you would feel if your child was exposed to somebody who was acting like your child. Does that make sense? Yes. So if if your child is sneezing up a storm or let's say RSV, which is very common in the toddler age group, um, this really snotty, snotty sort of child with um, bronchiolitis or a bad cough, they may not have a fever anymore. But if they're just, you know, dripping with snot and you send them to daycare and then somebody else's child is there, I feel like it's not fair to the other person. Even if your child doesn't have a fever, it doesn't really seem like you're doing your best to protect the spread of infection. Correct. So, and let's let's be honest, they don't they don't know how to sneeze and cover their mouth. <laughs> I, I've seen it. I see the spittle is. flying in the right. air, and I'm like, oh my exactly. god! <laughs> exactly. So it's it's about using some common sense to try and decrease the spread of infection. The the general CDC rules are fever free for 24 hours. You can go back to your normal activity, but you also have to be able to. Protect participate in your normal activity. If you have a child who's fever-free but is so tired still, 
sending them to school to just sit there and fall asleep at their desk is not appropriate either. Yes. So it really, you have to use some common Judgment. common good kind yeah. of sense to, to make a decision about when to go back to school. Um, there are certain things that we absolutely have rules for that are you're not to go back to school, you know, until you've been on this antibiotic or whatever for a certain number of days. Those we know because then you can be contagion-free after the antibiotic has kicked in. But with the flu, not everybody gets treated for the flu. You can only, um, we have something called Tamiflu, which we will um, treat people with if they are caught to have the flu within the first 48 hours of illness or if they have complicating factors like asthma or complicated home environments where they really need to decrease the spread of the flu because somebody else could become really, really ill with it. Um, But for the most part, it's a lot of just supportive care and then making sure you're not spreading it from person to person. Okay, the next question I have for you is is um, rooted in uh, something I see on social media quite often. There's lots of groups that I join on Facebook and stuff. And people will go on to these parent groups and say, my dear daughter has had this and start spelling out their medical like history of what the symptoms are and is asking for advice. And I personally, if I had a question... I, and, and I know I'm not normal or not like, but I, I would just call the doctor. Is there a right time to when to call the doctor when you after so many days or um, or to ask for the nurse? Like, what's the protocol? What do doctor's offices really prefer when it comes to asking for an appointment or to be seen? I would much, much rather that you call the office and speak to one of our um, nurses or myself or um, somebody here in the office rather than seeking out your medical care from social media. I mean, <laughs> I think social media has its value in certain things, but not in this. I, I mean, I think commiserating with somebody when you have an, you know, an already diagnosed illness is one thing to do on social media, but yes. to ask for advice on how to take care of something I feel is not appropriate. I mean, we want to hear from our families um, because that's what we're here for is to take care of their children. If, um, you know, if you're a parent trying to decide, is this too early to call or too late to call? I think you just have to ask us, just call. And then in terms of specifically knowing, you know, generally what we advise families is that most illnesses in children are viral. And most of the time your child, your otherwise healthy child should be able to fight everything off. Um, But if you feel like the illness is taking a turn for more sick, you know, a more sick appearance or your child's not breathing comfortably or fevers can't be reduced comfortably or they're starting to show you symptoms of dehydration, then of course we want to hear from you. And I mentioned that influenza can really only be treated if it's caught within the first 48 hours. So that kind of speeds up the time frame for families to call us. But I think that the families that have called and have said, you know, this fever, I came out of nowhere, it's 104, and he's just laying here, and he won't get up, and he's just really, really tired acting. They know. If you know that your child is looking different to you, you need to give us a call. You can see it as a mom. You're a mom, too. You can see it in their eyes. Like, I just look at my kids. when they're sick. Yeah. 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 Now, there's a lot in the news right now about coronavirus. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's uh, it's pretty big, you know, internationally. But um, is it something we need to worry about here in the States? Um, I think, you know, it got a lot of popular press already, and it's certainly scary sounding. Um, But unless you've been exposed to somebody who's actually been in China in the past two weeks, or you yourself have traveled to China in the past two weeks, and specifically to the province that is of concern, it is very unlikely that you're going to come across um, this novel coronavirus. It is much more likely that you're going to get influenza and rhinovirus and RSV 
and or pertussis or anything else that's circulating here in the United States um, rather than being exposed to coronavirus. It's novel and it's scary and it certainly is alarming what it's doing, but it's not in our population right now. So I'm hoping that with good um, effort, it will be a controlled um, outbreak there and we won't have to worry about it. But at this point in time, I'm you know, that's not on the top of my head at all. Okay. I was reading uh, in doing some research for talking to you today. I was reading and there was some study I read that said if just one employee goes to work sick, germs cover more than 50% of all the communal areas in the office, including like your fellow employees' hands and stuff, within the four hours. So like it matters. Like, I know people are really like they need to go to work or they can't don't always have the flexibility of working from home and stuff. But seeing that, it, I was really like, oh. Like, you know, there's people that are going to work sick. So mm-hmm. well, that's why we have <laughs> cough, cold and flu season. Exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. It's like just it, it just circulates. And again, the the purpose of the flu vaccine is to reduce the incidence of influenza illness. Right. But if it even if it's not a perfect match, it still helps decrease the length of time that you are sick and the length of time that you're contagious. Sure. So if there's anything you can do to be responsible to your colleagues and to your children and your children's classmates is everybody should get the flu vaccine. And it's recommended across the board universally for everybody over six months. So okay. there's really there's really not a reason to, to not, you know, there's not a reason to not get the flu vaccine. Sure. I'm going to make my kids listen to this because when I made them go up to their room or I was washing the blankets after they were laying <laughs> So they're like, oh, mom. And like, I'm trying to prevent it because my son and I kept saying survivors and we were fist bumping each other because dad and my (laughs) daughter got it. And we're like, we're not going to get it, mom. That's hilarious. All right. So, Dr. Chandra, we asked our listeners for some questions, um, you know, through Facebook. And some of them step outside the topic of cold and flu. um, But we wanted to address them anyway. So um, several moms... And this is a hard one. Um, several moms wanted to know how to access mental health services for teens and tweens. And so we don't want to get too much into the weeds, like, you know, with a very specific group or whatever, a local group. But when someone comes to you and says, I'm worried about my, my kid, she's depressed or whatever, you know, what's the route you take to direct them? Oh, this is a really, really tough, um, tough one, because we are seeing a lot more need for mental health. Um, services in our teen population. Um, you know, I don't know if the increased incidence has to do with um, what we expect of our children, what our children expect of themselves, how much social media is playing into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, children have always been children. Teenagers have always been teenagers. But we certainly are seeing a lot more need for mental health support. And maybe we're also just more open to it, which I think is great as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, what we're lacking then is the mental health specialist because we just haven't caught up to the need. Um, So pediatricians and um, internists are doing their best to provide as much mental health support that we can. Um, We reach out, from my office, we reach out to a variety of therapists. Um, We refer to psychiatrists um, at the Children's Hospital. Um, But it is really, um, it it is very, very tough. And um, what we end up having to do is to sort of um, triage who needs help faster and uh-huh. who's, who needs help but maybe can wait a little bit longer and can spend more time in larger group counseling or with us as 
as um, primary care physicians. Um, but it, it, it's definitely a tough question, and my heart goes out to families who are really struggling with this because it is really, really tough. And, and we're trying. The um, Like our children's hospital here um, is actually trying to have the psychiatrist set up educational sessions for primary care physicians to make sure that we're as up-to-date on things that we can be doing in our setting. Um, we have situations where we can actually take care of the patients ourselves or start certain therapies or medications ourselves. And then we can have conversations with the psychiatrist describing the patient so that we can be the conduit instead of having the patient have to wait to see them. So there are different things that we're trying to do to make this a a better situation for children um, or for teenagers, but it is really, it is definitely tough. And your, your, um, your Facebook, um, fans or callers are um, right in asking. And I think that the more they ask, hopefully the more, the more things will, will work out. Move along. Yeah. I know that in schools, um, a lot of schools are doing a lot of social emotional lessons and Mm -hmm. outreach with um, guest speakers coming in. Uh, I'm in a community where I'm, I think we're pretty lucky that there's a lot of workshops and parent workshops and things for outreach um, to help, help families navigate that whole mental health aspect so but but yep. pediatricians can be a, a primary resource you can you know if if your kid if you're worried you can always call your your regular doctor and say where do i go and the, and the doctor's office will usually have at least a set of people to refer to absolutely we have referral sheets and referral options and and commun- and contacts with people that we work with directly if we feel like something is dire of course we would make arrangements to have this taken care of so it's um it is, uh, it's just, that is on the top of our minds in terms of just getting more access for our patients. Um, and I think that um, the different departments of psychiatry, at least that I know of here in Chicago, are working on this as well. Okay. So this one's t- completely out of left field. So we're going to throw, but <laughs> okay. we, it's a question nonetheless. Another listener was asking about identifying babies or toddlers with vision problems. You know, it's mm. hard to figure out when they're little than when they can't read. Um, and don't know their letters yet. What signs do you look for when you have your well visits with um, your patients to to know if there's a problem? Well, actually, this is a really good question because um, it's actually something that the AAP um, has been working on. There are automated screening devices now that are recommended to be used in pediatricians' offices um, early in childhood. So like in our office, we do this at one, two, three, and four. Um, and the reason we do this is exactly what you said. Children cannot tell you that they're not seeing well, and they accommodate to not seeing well, and they just think that's normal then. Oh. Um, and the problem is, is that if you don't catch this early, you can actually develop something called amblyopia, which is a type of blindness because the visual tract did not develop well in that eye. So if there's anything obvious on exam, like you see eyes that are um, wandering or it seems like the child is squinting a lot or the child um, doesn't see things that you would expect them to see, then, of course, you need to bring that to the attention of the pediatrician. Um, And we, like I said, do these screenings. But if there is anything that we're concerned about, we would set you up with a pediatric ophthalmologist to have a full vision exam done. Most often, the thing that parents don't realize is that a a pediatric ophthalmologist, to do a good exam, needs to do a dilated eye exam. And that's the part that is really difficult for parents because their child is uncomfortable for like three hours getting their eyes examined. But that's what really needs to happen to do a good exam. Yeah, and Um, they have to cooperate. (laughs) 
and getting and a toddler to cooperate. So yeah. it, it's really difficult to do this. So not only are they not verbal enough to tell you that they're not seeing well, but then they have to cooperate with somebody who's doing something that seems awkward. kind of, you know, in your face and awkward. <laughs> so it, it's a it's a complicated thing, but it, it was really important um, because if you miss this, it really, it's not something that is necessarily recoverable. So um, it's really important to catch um, vision issues early in children. And then the state of Illinois requires all children to see, to get a, um, a true vision exam done before starting kindergarten. When my uh, oldest was little, little, and she was, uh, actually she was in little kickers with, uh, with <laughs> Tracy's oldest, but she would run. And then if she got like within six feet of someone, she would like duck. And I, and I was like, why is, what is up with her? And I thought maybe she had a depth perception problem. So we did go to a pediatric ophthalmologist and they put, you know, they had her look through a device and instead of reading off letters, they read off like bunnies or chickies mm-hmm. or like, you know, so they're mm-hmm. identifiable, identifiable, um, animals. But, mm-hmm. um, it was really stressful because she did not like having the, the gear on her face. Oh yeah. Sure. And so eventually I had to sit there and have her on my lap to do it, which mm-hmm. was, you know, that was really a brilliant move by the doctor. Um, but, you know, and it turns out she was just fine. She's just kind of, she just avoided people. Um, <laughs> she was cautious, yes. Um, but it was it was interesting because I, I wondered, how could you possibly get a toddler to tell you when she can't read? Yeah, no, I mean, we certainly, there are things that we can do in the office to examine eyes as well, which are important to do. And, you know, every pediatrician is supposed to be checking certain things at every visit. Um, but to do a to do a true vision exam, you actually really have to see an ophthalmologist and they have to do a dilated eye exam because they're looking for things that you can't just have a child tell you. They're looking for distances and length of the, or the length of the eye and, and how the retina looks. And, right. and that's all stuff that really the specialists have to do. Okay. And uh, one more question. What about hearing? Are there signs for that as well? Um, every baby born in Illinois has a mandatory hearing screen done um, within the, you know, at delivery time or sort of within the first couple of days after delivery. So that's a starting point. And then um, what we look for is normal vocalization and speech patterns throughout the first couple of years of life. And if there's any concern or if a child has had repetitive ear infections um, or if there are any other concerns for delays in the child's development, then we would have them see an audiologist to do a formal hearing screening done. Okay. okay. And this is a, a random one, but um, I've been seeing a lot of babies with helmets. And mm-hmm. um, I was a pioneer in this regard because my <laughs> my second born, my first born kind of wanted to squish that. my second born. So we didn't put her down for tummy time very often. <laughs> and it, she developed a flat head. What are mm-hmm. you seeing in terms of this, like this uh, surge in helmet use? Well, a lot of it has to do with positioning. Um, Ever since we started the campaign to have children sleep on their backs, I think there was a missing component at at that point to say, but play on their tummies. And so a lot of parents, you know, sort of didn't do that tummy time issue. And then they would notice that their child's head would get flat, either flat right down the middle or asymmetrically on either side. And so it's something that we talk about it, you know, early on also is tummy time is super important and to keep changing position um, that you're holding your child. That way you're not artificially creating more of a flatness issue. But yes, helmets have definitely been more on the rise and, and they're useful in certain situations. The brain is still growing, all of that's still happening. So it's really a cosmetic issue. 
but it's an important cosmetic issue and it can play a part somewhere down the road in sports and helmet usage. And um, I like to tell parents that helmets are kind of the way I think of helmets kind of the way I think of braces, mm-hmm. super important and helpful in some ways and, but very cosmetically important. Um, okay. And so, you know, it, it does help it, it to reassure families the baby's brain is still growing properly. Everything else is fine. It's really just about the shape of the skull. Yeah, my my little one still has a hard time with bike helmets because we we got her a little late to the to the game. So, um, mm. but she doesn't want to wear one. No, it, her head's wide. Oh, um, I gotcha. And the doctor said to me when I was like trying to figure out if I should get a helmet, the doctor's like, "Have you seen Stewie on the Family Guy?" And I said, "What?" <laughs> No way. <laughs> yeah, he was like, that's what she's going to look like. So, And I don't think he was actually trying to sell me something. I think she was just, we hadn't noticed. Her her head was getting mm-hmm. very wide. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it, it it can be an issue. I, I would have to say a lot of this is a, this is a first world problem. Oh, yeah. yes. You know, <laughs> yes. The helmet issue is a first world problem, but it's still, it's our world. So, you know, if your child's going to grow up and be a skier and needs to wear a helmet all the time and has to get all these accommodations done to the ski helmet because of head shape, that's an issue. And we don't, we don't have enough data to know what it does head shape is doing or altered head shape is doing to the connection between the skull and the spine. Ooh. Like there's a, there's a space there that, you know, if the, if the hole that the spinal column sort of inserts into where the skull is, if that's not the same shape as it's supposed to be, could that be a problem? Okay. We, we don't know entirely yet. So it is an important thing. Um, but it is a cosmetic thing primarily. Gotcha. Thank you so much, Dr. Anita Chandra, the pediatrician and spokesperson for the American Academy of Pediatrics. I'm so glad I called and they connected. It's like it was meant to be like we're supposed to connect with each other after all these years. So (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Thank you so much for helping us walk through it. Also, I just want to say to the listeners, Dr. Chandra got on the phone. She's like, oh, I remember your voice. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, <laughs> it's, that's okay. It's memorable, it's, Tracy. <laughs> it's a voice for radio. Yes, oh. exactly. It's a voice for radio. Yes. It's a calming voice. I like it. Well, th- <laughs> thank, thank you, you Dr. So Chandra. Much. Good to speak with you. So apparently, we need to have good practices in place at home, right? Washing hands, getting yep. sleep, eating right in order to avoid illness. Um, we can help others by keeping our kids at home when they're not healthy. Yes. And tummy time's important. Yes. <laughs> Even now. Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm going to go lie down on my belly right now. You know, and there's one thing that I'd really love to become contagious and spread like a virus. What? Our podcast. (laughs) Is that good? Yeah. Do you like that one? I mean, you just keep one upping yourself. I I think that (laughs) our our podcast apparently should just become like go viral and everyone in every neighborhood and city across the country needs to start talking about apparently and Tracy and Anne. And so we'd love for you to share our podcast with others. Yep. uh, Share it on Facebook. Um, I often will do an Instagram post. Um, Sometimes I tweet, but not that often. Um, But (laughs) share this share this podcast with uh, people in your neighborhood who send their kids to school sick (laughs) and don't do the 24-hour fever-free thing. Someone is be like, beating a drum right here. <laughs> be passive-aggressive about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're good at that. Um, so we're in season five right now. We're really trying to get more people to like our Facebook pages or rate us on iTunes. Uh, we love hearing your feedback. So please, please give it to us. Or you can call us at 331 331- 
704-0046 or email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Radio podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. Everybody sees it, they stop and take a look.